chair. And to this end, Andrew, if you would come up and address us today. Hello, it's great to see all of you. I'm P. Andrew Sandlin. Um, spoken here before several times. Great to be back. Um, in fact, I think this is my third time here. It's a great blessing. Uh, appreciate Pastor Eric. Uh, very close to him and his dear family. And great to see the other speakers. Uh, just met Paul for the first time today. And then my dear friend Barb. Uh, I mean Bob. Of course, it's not as bad as uh, one time I was introduced uh, at a church in Kansas by a, an elder who hadn't met me before, and uh, he introduced me and got tongue-tied and uh, said, now uh, we're hoping you'll come speak for us, Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, that one's been hard to live down at that church, and I've been back there several times. Um, <clears throat> I'm addressing the topic today, uh, to think and act Christianly, is to think and act creationally. Uh, That might sound uh, strange. It certainly would sound strange to the vast majority of modern 19th, 20th century evangelicalism. Uh, It is not strange. It's certainly not outside the bounds of orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. If anything, it's uh, more staunchly within the bounds of orthodoxy even than much of modern evangelicalism. But it's kind of a vision that's been lost along the way, and I hope I can say a few things to help recover it today. The Bible's first verse reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first words of the Apostles' Creed are, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Creation is the foundational fact of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, it hasn't always been given its due in recent generations, and this neglect has created a vacuum filled by depraved and demonic forces, like uh, gay marriage, so-called, normative singleness, transgenderism, and so-called gender affirmation surgery, which really should be called sexual mutilation. This is what the church faces today because she's marginalized creation for several generations. The church highlights the gospel and should, but the church somehow sidesteps creation. We're paying a very high price for that sidestepping. We all know or should know how important the gospel is. The gospel is at the heart of the Bible. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're forever lost. That's how important the gospel is. But the gospel isn't the only thing the Bible teaches, and it isn't the first thing the Bible teaches, and I would say it's not the most important thing the Bible teaches. If you want to know what God considers most important, we need to start where God starts, and that's with creation in Genesis 1.1. Have you ever been watching a movie at home? Remember DVDs? These things, they're called DVDs. Some of you younger don't remember these things. Uh, Watching a movie and had a relative or friend arrive late and uh, sit down and watch it for 10 minutes with you and then ask, 
Why did she, some character, he or she, do that? Why are they going there? What's going on right now? And similar annoying questions. And after a while, you probably respond in exasperation with something like this. You're just going to have to watch it from the beginning. Well, the same is true of the Bible. You can observe the action and the teaching. But if you really want to know what's going on, you have to read it from the beginning. Some well-meaning Christians seem to think that we should begin with redemption, the cross and resurrection and salvation, and then work uh, in reverse order to explain creation in terms of redemption. I'd like to suggest that has things precisely backwards. Uh, These early chapters are the context for the whole rest of the Bible. But because most of the Bible is about redemption, gloriously, we miss that point. We must be careful not to absorb creation into salvation history. Too often we look at Genesis 1 and 2 as the preamble for the Bible, setting the stage for the truly central message. Let's get through early Genesis so we can get to the really important stuff. But I would suggest that Genesis 1 through 2 really is the important stuff. It's the context for that message without which the cross and the resurrection and salvation are meaningless. Genesis 1-2 tells us how the cosmos got here, how it's structured, what God intends for it. Genesis 3-15 through Revelation 22-21 tell us how God is working to restore and expand his plan that sin spoiled. Genesis 1 and 2 isn't the preamble. It relates the cosmology. Now, what do I mean by cosmology? I mean the study of the origin and structure of the universe. More specifically, I mean that structure itself. The origin and structure and laws and future of the universe is cosmology. Cosmology manifests creational norms, a number of which I'll enumerate briefly in a minute. These include everything from physical laws like gravity and electromagnetics to moral laws like those governing language and sex and wealth. This means you can't understand what God intends and what he's doing in the world if you gloss over Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, if you're wrong about creation, you'll likely be wrong about salvation. But too many Christians don't read the Bible from the beginning. Uh, They start with Psalm 23, the Psalm of the Good Shepherd, uh, or Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, or John 3.16, the promise of salvation. These are, of course, vital biblical texts, but they aren't where we're to begin. (laughs) God wrote the Bible in the order he did for a reason. You can't really understand the middle and the end unless you understand the beginning. This is why Genesis comes first in the Bible, and we must always keep Genesis in our thoughts as we read the Bible and live out our Christian lives. Creation is the foundation of and backdrop for the rest of the Bible. You can't get creation wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. Now, many conservative Christians uh, seem to think about Genesis 1 and 2 almost entirely in terms of the creation-evolution debate or the battle over the length of creation days. These are important issues, and we shouldn't sidestep them. But the truths of Genesis 1 and 2 are much deeper than these issues might imply. The first chapters of Genesis aren't chiefly to be seen as a polemic against Darwinism. Darwinism is wrong because it's untrue to creational normativity. 
It presents a false picture of God's plan for the cosmos. Understanding that plan is the first step in refuting false ideas about it, like Darwinism. Genesis 1 through 2 discloses to us God's cosmology. Cosmology isn't subjective. It's objective. It's what's out there. The goal of our thinking and living should be to conform as far as possible to biblical cosmology. This is why I mostly use the term cosmos, as in cosmosology, cosmology, rather than universe, because cosmos better connotes the orderly world as God creates it. The universe might be thought impersonal. The cosmos is what it is because God made it and sustains it that way. We find the Christian cosmologies set forth in Genesis 1 and 2. One of God's main objectives, it seems, is to communicate to us his leading creational norms. Let me enumerate several of them for you. First is the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. It's found right in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God stands above and apart from his creation. He's not a part of it. That's why we have to deny pantheism. The creator-creature distinction means that the cosmos is God's idea and product. There's no one or nothing greater than God that conditions him. He conditions everything else. This is part of what it means to say that God is sovereign. (laughs) He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the final court of appeal. God is the creator and everything else is not God. God is the creator and everything else is not God. Second, God created man in his own image, the Imago Dei. The members of the Trinity chose to share their splendorous communion with creatures made like them, though not sharing in their being, as we do not. Man is not God, but he is created to commune with and love and talk to and imitate God, as only a creature can. The animals, too, are gloriously created, but they're not created in God's image. Only man is. Uh, But what precisely does it mean to be made in God's image? There's a lot of theological writing about that over the years. Great dispute over it. The Bible doesn't quite say explicitly. But in my view, when we let the Bible tell us what the image is, we learn that it's primarily communal and vocational. God made a community, two people, a man and a woman. And God is a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, man images God in that, and we see this, by the way, explicitly in Genesis 1, 26, 27, when he exerts dominion. Just as God is sovereign over all the cosmos, so he has made man to mediate his sovereignty to the rest of creation. Man stands under God and does God's work lovingly governing the earth as God's deputy. This is a big part of what it means for man to be made in God's image to steward the earth for God's glory. But that leads right to the third creational norm. That norm is the male-female distinction. And I'll spend just a little more time here because this is such a central issue today, in case you hadn't noticed. Herman Bovink wrote these memorable lines. The history of the human race begins with a wedding. The male-female distinction is part of what it means to be human. We read in Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
There's no full reflection of the image of God without man and woman. Every human, with rare exception, was created for marriage. To be created as human is, in most, in most every, not every, but in most every case, to be created for marriage. Man and woman are each God's image. But the fullness of that image can be exhibited only when taking both into account. To be male or female created in God's image is to be human. To attempt some other, quote, gender is to seek to be other and less than human. This distinctiveness is part of a true cosmological diversity. You ever notice the intentional diversity in creation in Genesis 1? God is diverse from creation. The light is diverse from the darkness. The land is diverse from the sea. The creation days are diverse from one another. The heavenly bodies are diverse from the earthly, from the earth, the earthly body. The sea animals are diverse from the land animals and the flying animals. Man is diverse from the animals, and man and woman are diverse from one another, though both equally created in God's image. Communion with God wasn't sufficient for Adam. I'd like you to consider this thought for a minute. Communion with God wasn't sufficient for Adam. God can't meet, and was never meant to meet, the man's entire needs. I know that runs contrary to a lot of sort of highly, overly pious evangelical thought, but it's right there by implication in Genesis. The man needed the woman. It's not good that man shall be alone, God said. But, but wait a minute, man wasn't alone, he had God. But the text is making another point. Man needed someone like him, his counterpart. To revise novelist Tom Wolfe, a man without a woman is a man in half. Man and woman are both created in God's image, but each is distinctive and, in fact, distinctive in ways that correspond to and complement each other. God fashioned woman to be different from man in the very ways that correspond to his inherent male limitations. God created woman to match man. Quite literally, Genesis teaches us that when God brought Eve to Adam, he met his match. He created her to be man's precise counterpart, to fulfill exactly those areas in which God created man lacking. In short, God created man not to survive without his counterpart, the woman. God created man incomplete. Make no mistake, Adam was created good like the rest of creation. He was not, however, created fully fulfilled in himself. Just as creation was created good, but needed man and woman's loving cultivation to bring it to its fullness, so the man was created good, but needed the woman as his counterpart. The sexual differences between men and women rooted in the creation order highlight God's intention that neither man nor a woman was created to be alone. In almost every case, marriage, the union of man and woman before God, is woven into the creational cosmos. It's every bit God's ordinance that the physical laws of gravity and propulsion and energy are. It's not a historically evolving, legally malleable, casually optional social construction. It is rooted in the world's creation order. Therefore, 
To preserve and perpetuate and promote marriage is to preserve and perpetuate and promote the world itself. The simple word of yes and no by the bride at the altar, excuse me, not only shapes and reshapes human history, it also, and more importantly, cultivates and nurtures and perpetuates the very cosmos itself. The married man and woman cultivate the cosmos for God's glory. And without marriage, the cultivation of the cosmos would finally fail. This, by the way, despite blistering assaults on it, is why marriage will not finally fail. Fourth, man and woman's primary earthly calling is to exercise dominion or stewardship over God's non-human creation. All of it. This commission is often called the cultural mandate. Interestingly, God decided not to directly oversee and steward the entire creation. He gave that responsibility to man. Just like he didn't charge, for the most part, didn't charge angels to preach the gospel, he charged you and I to preach the gospel. In other words, man and woman is God's deputy in the world. This cultural mandate, in fact, is the plot of the Bible, and redemption is the subplot. Now, if this assertion sounds strange to us, it's probably because we have not yet learned to read the Bible as a worldview book. We see in it instead principally a message of how we can trust Jesus and live a God-honoring life and get to heaven when we die. But God didn't create the world simply to take people to heaven. He created the world to glorify him. And man, as the apex of his creation, best glorifies God when he acts as God's deputy, cultivating the rest of creation for God's glory. This means that redemption is not an end. Redemption is not an end, but a means to an end to restore man to his exalted pre-fall calling. Man acts on God's creation and produces culture. God's design is that godly people produce culture. But the fall introduced a perversion of the cultural mandate. Because of sin, sinful people now produce culture. Note well this point. Unbelievers in the post-fall world fulfill the cultural mandate no less than believers do. This, in fact, constitutes a great conflict in the world. You look around today and you see all the bad stuff happening. Here's what we have. Two kinds of people with two very different spiritual natures and fundamentally conflicting convictions, both shaping the world, intentionally or not. You see, unbelievers are dominionists too. The problem is Joe Biden is a dominionist. Your governor is a dominionist. Uh, Most people in Hollywood, they too are dominionists. They're cultivating. They're cultivating. It's basically an architectural term etymologically, sort of to cultivate the soil. They're digging, they're cultivating, according to their sinful presuppositions. That causes this conflict around us, you see. In uh, education and politics and medicine and science and the arts and music and architecture and technology, movie making, all other cultural activity, two distinctively different ways This is the root of the Christian struggle against the new paganism, against abortion and pornography and statism and same-sex marriage and transgenderism and judicial tyranny and uh, Islam and radical feminism and, of course, much, much more. In short, sin doesn't eliminate the cultural mandate. 
It only perverts it. The urge to dominion is woven into man's very nature. It's a creational norm. Of course, for the cultural mandate to be what God intended, man would have to be redeemed and cleansed from his sin. The first implicit act of atonement in the Bible was when God made skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. He had to shed an animal's blood to do this. Fig leaves wouldn't suffice to cover their shame. Only the product of bloodshedding could do that. This act pointed to the one final and enduring sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whose bloodshedding on the cross can alone take away the guilt and corruption of our sin. When sinful man is redeemed, however, he's restored to his original place as God's deputy over creation. This is why God reissued his commission to Noah and his descendants. God didn't abandon his cultural plan for the earth. He reissued it to a newly redeemed people. Scott Haifman wrote this, Because of the atoning consequences of the cross, God is finally fulfilling his mission of revealing his glory through recreating a people who will exercise dominion in his name, keeping his commandments. The Great Commission, therefore, is the command to preach the gospel and disciple the nations, and it's actually the cultural mandate adapted to the, post, to the post-fall world. God's plan for man hasn't changed. Obedient creatures made in his image, cultivating the world for his glory. Properly fulfilled, the cultural mandate, that is the great commission, the gospel in the post-fall era, means that Christians self-consciously create a culture in harmony with God's will revealed in his word for his glory. Fifth, let's consider the goodness of creation as a norm. After God finished his work each day, he declared that day's work good. At the very end, he pronounced all of creation, what? Very good. God didn't just say, hmm, I do good work. He said, hmm, I do very good work. There's no defect in creation. It's precisely what God intended it to be. Creation is precisely the environment God designed. In fact, God created the world for man to rule. This is where modern environmentalism goes seriously astray. Many environmentalists state or imply man simply shares the world with the rest of creation and that the animals and plants have just as much a right to the world as man. That's flatly false. God created the physical universe and the plants and animals, and then he created and placed man in the world in order to rule it. Not improperly subjugate it, no. To treat it compassionately, in many cases, under God's authority, yes. But he is to rule it. The world was created for man. Apart from man, there is no such thing as the world. Strictly speaking, if there were no man, there could be no world. Creation is the environment in which God created man to flourish. Moreover, creation is man's permanently normative environment. What do I mean by that? It means, among other things, that man's sin didn't cause God to abandon his creational norms. God doesn't create junk, and he doesn't junk what he creates. For instance, some Christians believe that in Jesus Christ's redemption, God sort of gets rid of sexual distinctions. That's plainly foolish and evil. Redemption undoes sin. It doesn't undo creation. Others believe creation is the barrier to the fulfillment of man's spectacular imagination. 
Our bodies limit us. And if we could just upload our mind or consciousness to a very powerful computer, we could have a better life. This is false. Technology is an example of culture, precisely what God has called man to do. It's not a means to undo and redo creation. Creation is very good. There's nothing that needs to be undone or redone. Any attack on God's creational norms is an attack on God's will and the permanently normative environment. The final creational norm I'll mention today is creaturely, uh, creaturely fruitfulness. Creaturely fruitfulness. God made all plants and animals according to their kinds and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. He gave the same command to man. The living things of creation are designed to perpetuate by bearing fruit. Um, creation, held together at all points by Jesus Christ, we read in Colossians 1.17, is self-perpetuating. Not autonomous, but self-perpetuating. We read, for example, in Genesis 1.12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. In other words... God doesn't create every new plant or every new animal directly. The mechanism for new creatures or other living things is within themselves. God desired for his created beings to be self-perpetuating. The perpetuation of life is a creational norm, not a cultural quest. This means, for instance, there's room for extensive genetic improvements to life but not the creation of humans in test tubes. God created life to self-propagate. In addition, since God called man to be fruitful, children are a, not the only, but a chief objective of marriage. The so-called child-free marriage that was touted a few years ago as a cover story on Time magazine The child-free marriage is an attack on creational norms. God gives and withholds children from marriages. No question about that. So not to have children at all is not a sin if God doesn't open the womb. Of course, that's his sovereign choice. But for any couple intentionally to refuse ever to have children is an assault on the creational norms and is a sin One goal of every marriage is to bear children. Sometimes young couples have asked me, well, I understand that, but how many children should I have? And I respond, have some. Just have some. The creator-creature distinction, the image of God, the male-female distinction, the cultural mandate, the goodness of creation... Fruitfulness of creation, these six factors and others I could have mentioned uh, constitute biblical creational norms. Now, uh, to postmodern man, we can sort of envision God saying, if you want to reconfigure my creational norms, if you want to merge me with my creation, if you want to treat man as though he is simply a higher animal, If you want to redefine marriage as between two men or two women, 
or an additional number of them. If you want women other than biological mothers to carry children in their wombs, if you want men to be only nurturers and women to be martial arts combatants, if you want to subordinate man to creation and to worship the environment, if you want to emancipate humanity from creation, if you want to create a child-free world, if you want to do all these things, God, in essence, is saying, go build your own universe. But as long as you're in my universe, you'll do things my way or suffer the bitter consequences. Because the universe, the cosmos, is God's, because it is, in fact, God-rigged, we live in a God-rigged universe, these plans for recreating the universe will inevitably and invariably fail. And the more spectacular they are, like uh, gender affirmation surgery, the more spectacularly they will fail. All those who, those who hate God and his wisdom love death. We need not worry, therefore, whether the grand universe recreating plans will succeed. They will not succeed, but they will wreak havoc before they fail. In conclusion, how we view creation shapes the kind of Christian life that we live. I'd like to distinguish this, is certainly not original with me, between what I'd like to call Genesis 1 and 2 Christians and Genesis 3 Christians. Genesis 3 Christians basically start with a fall and redemption when viewing the Christian life. They're relieved their sins are forgiven. They work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. They work to get the gospel to others so they can avoid judgment and go to heaven when they die. They're deeply committed to their own sanctification, growing personally closer to the Lord and to his word. They see the church as individual redemption writ large, getting people saved and cultivating growth in grace that culminates in an eternity, enjoying the fruits of redemption won on the cross. Genesis 1 and 2 Christians, by contrast, delight that God is restoring and enhancing creation and that they as individuals partner in the outworking of that cosmic redemptive process. Jesus died on the cross and rose to reorient the entire sinful world. We work in preaching this cosmic gospel, which incrementally reclaims all of life presently under the dominion of sin. It won't be finally fulfilled, of course, until the Lord returns and the eternal state, but it incrementally will be fulfilled in time and history. Sinners trust Jesus Christ to restore and advance God's original purposes in Eden. We enjoy, therefore, the good life, meaning the God life for mankind the life of creation redeemed by the Lamb's blood. We look forward to eternal life on a redeemed earth, not in heaven. And I'd like you to consider that and read the first few verses of Revelation 21 sometime. The Bible does not teach that in eternity we sort of fly up into heaven and we live somewhere way, way out there with God in outer space. All to the contrary. Though it's symbolic language, Revelation 21 makes very plain that Actually, that heaven, the new heavens and new earth, new meaning not brand new, but sort of resurrected, recreated, sin purged, merged with one another. And far from God looking at creation and his created world as inferior, we don't go to live with God eternally. 
John writes that God lives with us here eternally. That's how much God loves his creation. God doesn't create junk, and he doesn't junk what he creates. We look forward to eternal life on a redeemed earth. We cultivate culture in preparation for that glorious earthly redemption. So I'd like to invite you this morning to be Genesis 1 and 2 Christians and not merely Genesis 3 Christians. Thank you very much.